and welcome back to another episode of the Hero Ball Podcast. I'm Richard Davidson, and I'm joined by my good buddy, Ethan Huffman. Now, Ethan, we're back after another, like, two-week hiatus. It's been crazy times in here, and uh, Ethan, how, how have the two weeks been for you? Well, I've been golfing a lot. Weather's been really nice out here in the uh, great state of Oregon, Portland area specifically. I got to play... Um, a course that is made famous by one Tiger Woods. He won his third straight U.S. Amateur at Pumpkin Ridge Witch Hollow by uh, hitting a hole-in-one on number 12 to win his third straight U.S. Amateur. And I birdied that hole, so I felt very good about uh, my performance. Um, shot 90, but we were doing Stafford. Uh, I can't actually remember what, what, what English na- last name it is for the scoring system. So you get points based on your holes. And all my bad holes were all triple bogeys. So I had four triple bogeys. Everything else was bogey or less. So I was able to score quite a few points, uh, regardless of my uh, four, uh, shortcomings on four holes. And still got out my $40. There you go. In the money, as they say. It would, it would, it would seem so. But I suppose the listeners didn't come today to listen to your golf um, exploits. They came to listen to us talk about basketball. In and theory. In, in theory, perhaps. And, you know, we, we've been saying in our group chat, like, it's been a tough couple of weeks for us to watch basketball. One, because you've been golfing so much. Two, I've been coaching basketball so much. And the overlap in the time when things happen. And the NCAA tournament has been on. And so, you know, watching some of those games uh, when whenever there is time. So so it's really been, it's been a while. And... What we decided to do was we're going to go ahead and just watch a game. We'll talk about it, and we'll, we'll see where it takes us. And, I mean, of course, um, I chose the Pistons versus the Blazers. Well, you live in Portland. I am a Pistons fan, and it's just – it was what came on uh, last evening. So, Ethan, uh, I, suppose, I suppose we can get into it, even though the Pistons – there's really not much to say, being at the cellar dwellers of the the uh, East. Yeah, we we'll say we can get into it. Although by the second half, the Pistons were not into it so much. They were not. Uh, I mean, yeah, we'll 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 get to that. But let's let's go ahead and uh, just start this game. So the starters here for the Pistons, which you you know the tank is is underway when when you see uh, Dennis Smith Jr., Corey Joseph, we had Josh Jackson, Sadiq Bay and Mason Plumley. It's really just the guard pairing. It's like, okay, I can it, it it's not even an exciting tank job. It's a it's a uh kind of gross. But but you know, they're, Killian's coming back and they're trying to manage his minutes and uh they're trying to, you know, work him along slowly and, and so I get it. It's fine. For the Blazers, they had their uh basically regular starting lineup obviously without uh Nurk Cantor in place of it and all I gotta say is, like, right off the bat for the Pistons, far too much Corey Joseph. Like, the whole game, just far too much Corey Joseph. I, it, in the moment when you made the trade for the DeLon Wright for Corey Joseph, trade, DeLon, White's, DeLon Wright is not a um, world beater, but at the same time, like, man, now, just after watching a little bit more of Corey Joseph, it's like, I feel like the Pistons should have gotten more for how bad Corey Joseph has been. It's one of those things that Corey Joseph is, is is a good vet, right? And he like for a lot 
for a lot of teams, he can be kind of like a steady enforce coming off the bench. Um, pair him with a pretty good, you know, let's say a guard that maybe, maybe even another point guard that has some shooting guard tendencies when you think about it in the natural order of things, but he's not designed out here to just run an offense. That's never been Corey Joseph Stees. When he was at his best playing for the Spurs and Pacers, both those teams were pretty, you know, system oriented, um, running a lot of sets that he's just the cog of the machine, not the, uh, not the, you know, oil grease and all the other things that make the machine run well, you know what I'm saying? And to start this game, he definitely thought he was everything and all things for the Pistons. And even with bad defenders like Dame and CJ, there, there's nothing he was going to do to uh, to really get the, the engine started. That's kind of the problem with this. Like, he, he's not going to bring you much on offense. And even though he tried, right, he tried to make a few things happen, lost the ball, got blocked a couple times. Uh, but additionally... With a team like this, where you've got Dame and CJ, like two of the better just shot make, like tough shot makers, which the Blazers had a good stretch of just tough shot making. Like Corey Joseph's defense, which is what's kept him in the league th- thus far. Guess what? You can play phenomenal defense, but if they just bury a difficult shot over you, like that's tough, and that's a lot of what happened uh, in in today's game. Yeah, and that's exactly what the Blazers thrive on is they they're an ISO heavy team. And for what's worth, with Damon CJ, they are guys who shoot over through and around you and Norm Powell's a guy who will bat- battle his way to the rim and to his shot. It's, it's honestly just a team that uh, it's one of the big concerns I have about the Blazers like long-term success is that they are so ISO heavy, but when you're talking about teams without or even with like average to above average defenders not like the elite of the elites you're gonna lose a lot of those battles yeah one thing that initially that i i want to try to observe and notice is just how teams are um choosing to defend like what are some of the choices that they're making in was curious for me like the pistons i could tell that they had like a particular um approach especially like you gotta look at the centers and how you're defending pick and rolls and things of that nature and and it was interesting because Plumley in particular was defending on pick and rolls he was just up basically if he wanted to he could reach out and, and t- touch cancer so he was up pretty high uh and then it was basically just him trying to contain any dame drives and on one of them dame like, he forced Dame to throw it away, like, but it really was just Dave threw a bad pass. Uh, but that was kind of how they chose to defend Plumley up a little bit more, really just trying to funnel and get the ball out of Dame's hands. Uh, not incredibly aggressive, but more aggressive than Enos Cantor, who was just in the deepest of drops. Like, the, the tough part when I saw, like, uh, this is just the way that Cantor is playing, and, and the thing you've got to do to take advantage of him is either be pick and roll heavy but guess what the Pistons guards you don't you don't have it with Corey Joseph out there uh handling the ball a lot of the time like this I I felt that this was not not to just slander Corey Joseph over and over and over again but like I feel like this is the wrong matchup for him the, the wrong type of game for him because number one it's tough because you don't you know you're trying to limit Killian Wayne Ellington wasn't available this would have been a Wayne Ellington game because uh, in Cantor in those deep drops, Mason Plumley operating at the high post, like DHO all day. But if you DHO into Corey Joseph, you're not taking any advantage into that. And that was one of the things that they weren't able, the Pistons weren't able to take advantage of the what 
Enos Cantor's uh, drop defense, not even just regular, just deep drop defense was was giving them. And so that was one of the tough things there. And what's funny to me is, uh, you know, Enos Cantor also playing a little bit of that high post operating up there, just, you know, kind of like in the way that Rudy Gobert does sometimes where, yeah, he's not shooting up there, but he's operating up at that spot, ready to, to you know, to hand the ball off, ready to set a screen for someone to roll. And on Cantor DHOs, whenever, uh, um, sorry, w- w- whenever there was a one of the one of the scores with no McCollum or Dame or sometimes Powell, but less so Powell because Powell really didn't have it going in this game. Uh, he would be right up on on him to kind of allow for whoever the defender is to go ahead and chase under or or you know basically allow the defender to make the the best decision that they possibly could. But it was interesting because you're pressing way up on uh, on on someone like him, especially if Dame comes off because you got to be ready to go out there and 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 cut Dame off and make sure to get the ball out of his hands. And so it was just, that was just something that was curious to me is one of the things I try to look at uh, at the beginning of games. How how are you defending what the other team is trying to do quite a bit? Yeah, and I think it's really interesting to see you know a Plumlee who used to play with Dame when Dame was first um, beginning a lot of. Um, what he's become and the, you know, dribble handoffs and these deep threes and, and Cantor who, who is doing the same role with, with a little bit less of the passing chops that Plumlee showed when he was in Portland. Um, he, he, Cantor can throw some passes. He's definitely not Nurk. He's not Plumlee either, but he, he's definitely a guy who is, is, is more of a danger there than a lot of the, some of the big centers that um, find their way out to some facilitation via dribble handoff um, there at the top of the key. Um, I, I do agree. Like I think the Pistons and then Plumlee specifically, they were they were doing a really good job of you know showing um, on those dribble handoffs. I think if Cantor was a little bit more, um, it, let's say like I mean he's not Bam obviously, but like if if the Pistons did that like on a, a Bam um, Kendrick Nunn Bam Ken, uh, Duncan Robinson thing, Bam would have had about eight dunks because they were going a little too aggressive and Cantor probably because of some of his physical limitations, can't just put that ball on the on the, on the the ground and get to the rim in two steps. Like he actually would have to, you know, put turn the tur- his turbo jets on to really burn the defense for how aggressively they were they were uh, hooking up with uh, Dame and CJ on the other side. And you could tell that the goal was to try to limit Dame as much as possible. Like that that was the goal. And well, in you know, in the end, Dame Lillard scores twenty seven points, you know, so it, it didn't quite do it, but they did make things a little more difficult on him. But Dame, when he saw kind of how they were playing against him and, and the things that they were trying to force, it began to really open things up for everybody. There was a time when they did that and you could tell, hey, Plumlee is selling out to uh, you know to, to trap or, or to uh, show really hard on this Dame handoff. And then Dame whips it right back to a diving canter for a dunk, right? So... It, and that helps too late it's not there so it's they were aggressive in it and i think made things a little bit difficult early on but dame figured it out by what like the second quarter i mean yeah. even if it took that that long and 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 while we're on the topic i think this was happening more in the second half but what they started doing as well and i think it was a lot in the third quarter they dame would actually be off ball cj just be you know 
dinking around with one other player on let's say let's say the right side of the court. They'd set a double screen for Dame. He'd catch the ball after getting screened twice. One the first screener would flare to the, go to the corner. The second would be Cantor or any other roller, but it was primarily Cantor because the Blazers basically always played small when Cantor wasn't on the court today. And Cantor would roll, Dame would get the ball, and there'd be two guys on Dame because with the double screen, it was a lot to communicate. And Dame would be able to whip that pass to Cantor there, even as not the pick and roll initiator. It was just the double screen from off ball. You know, it's it's nice to see Dame getting involved off ball. And some other things, the complaints that everyone has about Trey Young is is he going to be more of a is he going to be more of a, a staff or or is like honestly. Like, I mean, he's not as good as either of these guys, but if, if Trey Young stays as a Dame kind of off-ball guy, that uh, that's not the best utilization. And and Dame, for us for today, granted, he, he was running hard to get the ball back, but it's it's good to it's good to see him being really active off-ball and prov- and provoking the defense to make reactions. One more situation I want to just want to note. It happened. I don't know. I I have to look in my notes to see kind of where it happened. But similar situation like you're describing. Dame's in the corner this time, and I think that they had, um, I don't want to say Powell or or, or or someone up on up on the wing, and it was a Cantor DHO. But we had Isaiah Stewart on him. Now, again, I think that the communication was primarily McCollum and Dame. We're going to be belly up on, on, on Cantor to make sure that we can jump out on those. You don't really have to worry about that as much for Powell just because he's not quite as quick as, as those guys out on the perimeter. But it wasn't one of those guys. Dame was in the corner. And so, uh, uh, let's see. Yes, yes. yes. So they basically, they got the they got the DHO up, up to Cantor at the top. And Cantor recognizing how aggressive he was just like, well, I'm going to go ahead and do the foul drawing. I'm shooting a shot yes. to the top of the key because, because again, it, Isaiah was way up there, which I'm pretty sure the coaches emphasized for like Dame and CJ, but that wasn't the situation, and and Cantor took advantage of it. Yeah, um, and I, I remember specifically the Portland announcers as I, I actually was listening to the game to help me stay really really engaged. Like I actually don't like listening to announcers for the most part, but. When I'm really trying to make sure I'm engaged, it's it's good to have the ambiance of the sound. I hope someday there will be a feature to like these streaming um, options where you can choose no announcing crew, just game sound. Because I love hearing the game sound. I love the sounds of basketball. Um, and it's no shade to like announcing crews. Like they, I uh, undoubtedly they know m- probably more about basketball than my, me. If not, it's it, I'm not going to definitely say I'm superior, but. It's just in in this space that they occupy, it's so hard to give a lot of really thoughtful analysis and helpful information. And I would rather just watch the game, uh, maybe pop it on if there's a foul call that I'm kind of confused. At, like, oh, they're reviewing what? I don't understand. Um, but for the most part, uh, I would just like to hear the sounds without any voices. Yeah, I, I think that we would all love to hear that. But uh, so uh, that was that was the last situation that with with Cater up at the top and. Again, it's an interesting situation. If you got a non-shooter up at the top, it's how you can use them and how you can hurt teams that play drop. And the Pistons couldn't do it. Um, so, next thing I want to talk about real quick, and this kind of starts off in the first quarter. Still, um, Sadiq Bay and some of the uh, the the, re- the really good moments that he was showing. He showed some a little bit of like life off the dribble. His first two points came off a 
a hard closeout from Rocco, and then and Sadiq Bey just drove right past him left baseline and did a little reverse layup. That was really nice. Um, he, he His shot, I think his percentage has dropped based on his performance in the second half. But Sadiq Bey was really the reason that the Pistons stayed very competitive in the first quarter and into the second um, minus that, uh, that, that stretch where the Blazers just were on fire to, uh, to end the, in the first, honestly, to end almost every quarter, they, they really just caught fire. I, I wonder yeah. if that has a lot to do with just like, all right, we, we, we have two minutes ago. Um, Dame and CJ, you know, usually still on the floor to close out, uh, the lot close out quarters. And they're just like, all right, I'm hunting my shots. And you know, when you really key in key on on that kind of aspect of offense there, there's no one on the pistons that are going to stop them it wasn't even those guys though it was like we got carmelo just hitting really tough step you know, off the dribble threes fadeaways last second like shot clock's about to end you know rattling at home and nasir little like making every one of his shots like it was it was ridiculous let's 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 be clear <laughs> i do want to mention that nasir little's uh i think shooting 35 percent from three this year so like, he is making the strides that he needs to to like start being an effective rotation player at the NBA level. I'm pulling it up. Oh, I lied. He's shooting 38% from three this year. I wonder. He's, and he's he's shooting when he plays two per game. Um, I'm gonna see if I can get his gross. Go ahead. What are you wondering about? Well, I wonder if so. Obviously, the big move that Portland made was was trading for Norm Powell and, and moving after Gary Trent. Gary Trent, by the way, scoring 44 points last night, so had a ridiculous shooting output game. But I wonder if, because I like that trade for Toronto just because of their situation, whereas if they stood pat, like Norm Powell is probably leaving. They're not going and paying that money because what's the point? And so for them to get a, what I'm going to assume is going to be more cost-controlled situation in Gary Trent Jr. on the restricted market compared to Norm Powell as, as an um, you know, unrestricted free agent. But I wonder if um, Portland recognizing, hey, Norm Powell is able to be more of a scorer, uh, ISO situation, like I, his ISO game is better than Gary Trent's. I wonder if maybe the development of Anasir Little kind of makes Gary Trent like, hey, we've got another guy in the wings where, where his his shot wasn't that good. What if we're developing him? Now, I haven't watched as much Blazers, so I can't necessarily speak to anything beyond this game. But I wonder if his development made them say, hey, maybe we can turn Gary Trent into a more, uh, you know, into Norm Powell because we've got another one kind of coming up. Yeah, and this is the this is the only thing I want to like, kind of key in real quick. So last year he played at a 573 minutes. Nasir did. This year he's got four uh, 474 right now. So that's that's for the whole season, right? Last year he, in more minutes he took only 59 threes, made 14 of them. Horrible percentage, 23 percent. Took 92 two point attempts. Um, right now, um. This year, he's taken 68 threes, made 26 of them at 30 at 38% clip, and he's taken only 63 two-point attempts, um, and he's shooting 60% from there, so a 5% tick up in the 2% game as well. The, the point I wanted to make with that, like kind of showing the disparity here, is that last year, he was not pulling the trigger. Granted, he was shooting poorly, so I can't fault him, but... I think the biggest improvement he's made this year is like right now he's taken more threes than he has taken twos. And for a guy who is like, you know, a problem as a shooter, you know, that like, that's what his label would have been until like, as he's performing this current season, I think that's a really, I think, I think we can read into that statistic a little bit in terms of his raw numbers and realize he's much more comfortable taking a three now. Whereas last year he'd get some kickouts, 
pump, two dribbles, and uses athleticism at the rim. So I agree with your your thought process. Like, the whole the whole we can rehash the Gary Trent Norm Powell thing. Gary Trent not as good a player as Norm Powell. Um, better, but he could be retained easier. Yeah. Um, I don't think Norm. I think Norm Powell's a better defender too. So like for the Blazers' woes, I I do think I do think he's helpful, especially when we're talking about one-on-one defense. Just that th- those arms, those arms are long. Um, but for for the Raptors specifically, where if they if they want to keep pushing the, the the ball forward and trying to compete right now, Gary Trent's not that big of a downgrade for what they already have with Pascal as a creator, with OG Anobi who says you look to do more creation, um, Fred VanVleet who's a creator. Kyle Lowry, if they retain him as a creator, they don't really need another creator. You could argue the same thing for the Blazers, but the Blazers aren't really all a pass-centric team, as Dame and CJ are both heavy ISO guys. But if the Raptors are rebuilding and the market is um, kind of restricted, as is often in restricted free agency, they can get Gary Trent on a potentially a four-year deal with pretty good cost control to be there for if they get lucky in the draft and can, or if they tank down and grab a Kate Cunningham or a Jalen Suggs. You already have your guy to pair with someone who's a catch-and-shoot guy who clearly can put up a lot of points when he has the volume available to him. Just isn't probably the better player of the two in the trade. I think it's a great, very mutually beneficial trade, assuming both both teams can retain the, the pieces they acquired. I got down a little bit of a rabbit hole as you were thinking and talking about that because you're like, oh, you know, not Nassir Little's uh, three-point percentage has has improved quite a bit. And I was like, well, you know, I wonder because I, I remember uh, a piece in The Athletic where Seth Partnow was talking about uh, just other just trends within the NBA and talking about how, you know, what things are sustainable, which things are not sustainable. And ta- basically, this year is the best three-point percentage shooting year of all time. Uh, better. You know, so last year, like so basically, teams hover between thirty-four to thirty-six percent. Like thirty-six percent has been uh, close to the max. I guess we're we're tied. So I I found one more like oh eight oh nine. The three-point percentage was was this way, but like not nearly the volume, right? So we are at a point where we are shooting threes more than ever. Thirty-four, thirty-five attempts per game. By teams, and we're up at thirty six point seven percent from three, and so I, I just was like wondering, like, well, why are we having this type of thing? Is it because in the pandemic, it, you know, you really can be playing as much basketball, and so okay, well, it's, I'm in a gym, let me work on my shot. Uh, and I don't know if it's just teams emphasizing them, I, if teams just getting more efficient overall. Who knows? But I, I was just kind of thinking about, oh, that's your little like obviously improved, which we would expect from a second year player, right? But Oh, and, and his 23%, I don't think, was ever going to be – like, that That's that was too low, right? Yeah. 23% from three was too low. And that that's a guy who, on a team that's trying to be really competitive, um, he, he wasn't good enough and, like, trying to find his spot. But, like, I, I agree. 38 might be kind of rosy. There's all kinds of factors. Like, guys, if, you know, if, if, if small sample size, again, it's only, it's only on, let me see it again, 68, uh, 68 attempts this year. So it's not, it's not a big sample size, but like, like you said, like pandemic. So if people are behaving the way they should have been during the pandemic, you have more time on your hands to, to work on your game. So, and you probably can't do just runs. So you're probably just doing a lot more dribbling, shooting those kinds of drills. Not to mention, there's no, there's not a lot of distractions in the crowd these days. And NBA, NBA, actual NBA arenas, 
Um, I actually would love to see if there's a breakdown from the college, the, the, the tournament to see when they played in the actual college arenas and the NBA arena, if the, if the percentages were higher versus when they threw it back into Lucas oil stadium for no reason, um, to, uh, to, to see how everyone shot there, because that's, that's huge. In my opinion is the backdrops. NBA arenas have good backdrops. It's nice when they're filled up with stands to, fans too, but there are some distractions undoubtedly when there's fans in the stands. And so I think it's a, it's a nice combination of a lot of things uh, that are leading to the trend line being better shooting. But I've said this before, the NBA is just getting better in terms of skill. Skill efficiency and all, all that, all that Jazz. So just think about the guys like real quick, the guys like Matt Thomas and Duncan Robinson, who would never have been in the league until the, like the last five years, those elite shooters are allowed in the league now because of that incredible skill. Whereas previously they would have been like, can't guard anyone. And we don't, we don't have the, the time or effort required to make you playable. Like think about Jason Capono, how little he used to play. Jason Capono might play 30 minutes a game now based on his shooting ability. All right, let's get back to the uh, uh, the Pistons, game in hand. Pistons game, Pistons Lasers game uh, that we've been talking about. Um, Metro City Bay playing well, uh, you know, five away from been. the five from the field. What could have been right drafted with the Blazers slot, but they went out to get Robert Covington. Who Robert Covington? Guess what? This type of game, not really what what he was brought in really to play for or do. So like, I'm, I'm not gonna sit home and say, you know, what the Blazers would be better with Sadiq Bey than Robert Covington. Like, Robert Covington was not brought in to shut down the Detroit Pistons. So they have different aspirations at hand. We'll, we'll see how, how things go with him later on. But Sadiq Bey played well, did not really play very well at all. I don't think he made a bucket the last two t- last time these two teams played. The Pistons announcers, as they were talking about that, were, were emphasizing that, and he just comes out of the gate firing and um, – you know, he gets 12 points in the first first quarter, and he's the only Piston who played uh, every minute in that in that first quarter. Really kept the minute, like you like you said, but he was finding the open spaces. Covington lost him a couple of times. He got a couple of offensive boards and was able to you know find him for open open threes. But the thing that impressed me, I think you mentioned one of them, like uh, on that reverse layup and then him finding his way in, his patience and control. In, uh, as he was getting the lane, it was uh, it was good to see. So, Sadiq Bay was obviously a player who who impressed me. A player who didn't play as well, um, even though he played well in previous outings on this road stint was Killian Hayes. On the defensive end, he got a couple of uh, tip aways and um, deflections and things like that. So he was active on that end, but on the offensive end, it really wasn't there. Like he was able to get into the um, he was able to get into the paint a few times and you know, find some guys on some kickouts and stuff, but it really never led to uh, didn't really lead to a whole lot of opportunity. He had a few turnovers, sometimes just lost the ball, and it's it was it just wasn't his type of game. I was afraid when he got pulled after that one turnover when he tried to dribble baseline on Derrick Jones Jr. that oh he was just done because I was seeing um. Just because I was a little bit behind in the game and seeing tweets from Pistons Twitter saying, "Wow, you know, they they pulled him and Casey just sat him the rest of the game." But he came back in the fourth eventually, but it wasn't his best game. You you can go back and look at how he played against OKC or or Sacramento. He played pretty well in those games, but it, it just 
it wasn't quite there for him uh, today, especially on the offensive end. I think it's important to remember that we we, we are looking at him as a complete player. And I, I, I know we were texting a little bit while I was watching rewatching the second half uh, today, this morning. Uh, we were talking, Isaiah Killian didn't have a very good game. And you were, you were quick to remind me that he played solid defense most of his minutes in there. Um, and it's, it's important to remember that aspect because he, he is doing that well. He's, he's definitely communicating well. He's moving with the screens and stuff. But his offensive game is the part that we had we had more concerns about, especially his jump shot, which he does not look to take very often. And honestly, his passing, when you are so left-hand dominant, we've seen that we've seen the gaps in that in that in that option here and there. Well, here's here here was one of the issues. Like that left-hand dominance came into play in in one play in particular. So he was wide, being guarded by layup. CJ. Yeah, the wide open layup. It's like he lulled he lulled CJ to sleep, and then he just drove right, right, driving with his right hand, taking it to the hole. It's just a he needs to like right, but then he went back to his left hand for like a weird like too close to be a floater, but it was kind of a floater, and he he, he couldn't make it. And so, like, yeah, you you got to figure that out. That's, that's something you've got to get in your bag in your bag and are being able to on a drive right hand layup. It's like you need to be able to do that, Killian. And so, you know, you're still young. We got time, but uh, that was something that was something difficult for for him. Uh, yeah. Led to a transition game three, and you had to like have a quick timeout. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it, it was. It, it, it's one of those layups that if you watch that, and you, you let's say you've never seen Killian Hayes before, you see that play, you're going to be out on him for a long time because that's the kind of thing you see in high school basketball. Mm-hmm. The the lefty who doesn't want to go right, doesn't want to go right. They give you all the right space. You, you you get past him, and then you throw away your advantage by putting it back in your left hand. And it's it's one of those things like. We like Killian. Killian yeah. has a lot of positive aspects. You know, we definitely championed him going to the Pistons because we, you know, I want good things for you, Richard. I yeah. really do. And I was like, ah, good. Killian to the Pistons. He's a good player. And that's one of those things that we were worried about. And it's going to require him to get better at if he wants to be an effective offensive NBA player. Yep. All, all true. Um, so that was, uh, uh, we had that one thing that was interesting to me. Um, I remember we talked earlier in the season about kind of these young guys, and I think it might have been a particular draft class, but uh, we were trying to figure out kind of like tiers of people in certain draft classes of, of kind of these these young guys. And I remember there was a discussion on Hamadou Diallo, and and uh, I was like, yeah, forget about him. He hasn't done, he hasn't done that much. And then you were like, yeah, no, he's he's done, he's okay. And uh, I was like, okay, fine, we'll include him and. In like interesting things, and now he's on my team, so I've got you know I've got to yeah I've got to I, I I think it was Hammy and Jared Vanderbilt that I was caping to keep both on the list. I think it was that draft class. I'm pretty sure they were. We, the we same talked draft about that class. draft. Yeah, we talked about that draft class. I don't. I wouldn't have been. I don't think I was fighting you on on Vanderbilt that much, but I was. I definitely was. He, I, yeah, Vanderbilt at the time was still on the Nuggets and hadn't had like was playing on a good team, so hadn't had a chance to really show anything. You know, as he, he wasn't better than Paul Millsap, right? Uh, but then he she shows some stuff this year. But yeah, I I think it's I will always be a sucker for athleticism. And Hamadou Diallo, Derek Jones Jr. Same Weaver. Yeah, so, hey, maybe maybe there's a job for me in Detroit. Can I work remote from Portland though? <laughs> um, and it's it's one of those things. Like he, he 
and, and what, one of the reasons Saban Lee catches my eye too, because he he's a very athletic person. But Hammy is so out of control almost all the time. Both his turnovers day he had or the, yesterday he had two were like dribbling off his foot or like just losing the ball in his hand, reaching for it violently and like hitting it hitting it to nowhere. Um, his shot still needs a lot of work, but his shot sometimes goes in. I think the Blazers the Blazers accrue I mentioned that he'd played this is the fourth game Hammy's played against the Pistons this year and he was shooting like sixty percent oh, from against, three. Against the Blazers. Against the Blazers, because he played him twice with OKC oh, and God. played him on the 31st with the Pistons and then again uh, yesterday. And that Hammy had actually low-key been a little bit of a Blazers killer, which if you, in theory makes a little bit of sense, because if they're not playing small and he's kind of going up against CJ and Dame, he will be able to out, you know, out-athletic them and get some you know pretty easy looks. So it's kind of interesting to see, like, hey, that, that's where he can thrive if he's playing against a bunch of small people. But the, I think that when the Blazers went small and had kind of like a, you know, the mob mentality switching defense, uh, it was it was bad news for him. He was having a lot of trouble figuring out where people were coming from. Yeah, he had, like, he went to his floater a bit. Like, he, the one floater he did make, he kind of, like, I think it was off of a offensive rebound, a play broke down, something. They went in and driving to his left, floated to his right, and money. Like uh, our athletic beat reporter basically had a few days ago called him like the floater king. I don't know. He, like, he was like he's been doing. He's like is, is he like difficult floaters? Like he, apparently he has a throne or whatever. So I, I don't know. It was it was well, interesting. I'll say, I'll say this: if you are really athletic, think about Derrick Rose back in his floater days, right? If you you jump, you realize you can't get all the way there, but you're still high enough that everyone else is going down. You transition to the floater. You needed to tell Josh Jackson that in the fourth quarter because Josh had him. He went for the dunk, and he's like, ah, "I gotta get a layup. I think I can still make it." And then he didn't make it. Yeah, that was a funny was, one. Yeah. That, that, that was a funny one. Um, speaking of dunks, I had I have in my notes a big dunk from ooh. um Seku on Roko. True. Yeah. I had that one as a ooh. I also remember Sadiq Bey uh, ripping Rocco in transition, and just because I want to, you know, pub pub Sadiq Bey even more, I'm just going to mention his name once again. But what, what was the dunk you were thinking of? Well, well, I was so I didn't know you were going Pistons here. I thought you were oh. going uh, both Dame dunks, uh, where oh. it's those 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 are real nice. Dame was looking for fouls on a couple of them, and I think it, one of them did. One of them lead to the. the I, I can't remember the, the Seiku yeah, fast break the, dunk that you're talking about here. The, but. The, I think it was the first Dame dunk where he, he came in, just dribbled straight down the left side of the lane, and you know the, his his just classic grim grazer where mm-hmm. he like just jumps one way and just waits till he gets to the rim and then uh, flushes it with the right. Yeah. Um. He 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 kind of got hit on the back. On, on, like it, it, I I don't know if I'd call a foul there because like I don't know Dame, like Dame's body was kind of contorting in a weird way, but. He he dunks and while he's getting kind of getting like a body to the back a little bit, mm-hmm. so he he kind of like catches with the left foot and then falls, and so he was looking for a foul like okay what happened here why am I on the ground, and um, Pistons inbound right away and Seiku yeah. got the big dunk on Roko to go in the other way. Yeah, and that's one thing I do want to talk about Seiku. Want to have a moment talking about him because he had a pretty good game today. So end up with um, eleven points. Two blocks, two steals, um, and he was four for nine from the field. Now, 0 for two from three-point range, three for three from the free-throw line. And so I just want to take a moment to talk about him because he's a curious case to me. So 
one the, the thing that he does exceptionally well is he runs the floor and we really haven't had people looking for him one of the downfalls of delon wright is running in transition he couldn't find a soul like tra- transition with delon wright running the show really wasn't there but today i think frank jackson hit Sekou on that one where he dunked it um and th- there's he's able to run and get out there and he got a, a couple of i think all of his rebounds were offensive boards he had three offensive rebounds and some putbacks and and so he found himself in the right spot, those kind of hustle categories. But the things that concern you uh, when it comes to Seku is stuff like the three-point shot. I don't know if you've noticed this, but Seku's shot, it gets so much arc to it. It's it's so arcing. And but his free like one of the things that is talked about is okay, free throw percentage tra- translating to three-point percentage over time with some of these prospects, right? Well, Seku, he, well, shoots the ball pretty well from the free throw line. I, I got to pull up his actual numbers, but he was three for three in this game. And uh, we should, I should probably have this pulled up already. Uh, but he's, he's this year 77 on the year. 77, 78% on the year. So it's not bad. It's an improvement from last year for sure. Uh, but his, his, uh, the ball in his hands look, looks pretty well on his follow through. And it's, it looks good. The problem is, I feel as though his release angle and like the, the direction the ball goes is much better for something like free throws where everything's very controlled. I can go ahead and shoot it. The arc is fine. And it, it when it hits the rim, it's a very soft um, landing just because of the arc that he's got on it, the spin he's got on it. Uh, but when he's shooting on the three-point line, man, those those moon, moon balls, like you've really got to be like, very accurate just the time that it's in the air just there's, there's there's i don't know it just feels like there's more that could that could go wrong during that time and I, so some of his misses look real bad and it, so the three-point shot i'm concerned about and i just wonder if he's he got always very young but i wonder like is he going to be anything ever more than just a guy who tries to hustle around on defense and runs in transition so when i when i saw him shoot today or yesterday um I remember thinking about Lou Dort, and Lou Dort has a very similar problem with his three-point shot. I think one of the the sh- again, I'm not a shooting coach, but I think a problem I see with a lot of guys who really struggle with consistency of their jump shot is that coaches will, in an effort to instill a really straight follow-through and going up on the top of your shot, you 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 ask them to add you know arc because a lot of people will want to shoot flat, you know. Short, short wrist flick with more power, but more dead at the rim. Sadiq Bay. Sadiq Bay, yeah, but it works for him. But it, yeah. like, I, I wouldn't mind if he shot with a little bit more arc because I feel like he would shoot 40, 42% if he had a little bit more arc. The coaching staff has said we're not you know, in the shortened offseason. I think we're not, we're not messing with it this year. Maybe we'll look yeah. at things in the offseason, but we're just going to leave it, leave it as is. But yeah. He clearly has the touch. He can probably tinker a little bit and not lose it. But you get these guys like Lou Dort specifically, who I think shoots the highest arcing shot in the NBA, and he's not a good three-point shooter, but he's an average free throw shooter. He's uh, 76 for his career, 75 this year. You, it's it's like almost like they get like that elongated wrist hinge, which is in the big elbow catapult shot towards the rim, and you're just sending it so high because the coach is like, make, make the basket bigger, put arc on your shot, put arc on your shot. But 
unless you have like that fingertip touch, which most of these guys, not everyone shoots from their fingertips. A lot of people shoot with like, you know, I don't know. What is this? Your carpals, um, like the right before you get to your, your, phalanges. Uh, your phalanges, the metacarpals, probably if you're shooting from those, your, your touch is just a little bit more off and you're pushing the ball more so than you're, you're shooting it. And I think that's a big problem with a lot of these people who shoot those really high arcing shots. Um, they get relaxed to the free throw line, easier shot. It's more in the it's more in the fingertips, and I know that's probably it's probably not it's probably more of a, a visual medium that right. should be doing this than an audio. It's okay. But I I'm I'm backing up your 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 observation that his high arcing three is a problem, and I brought in another player who does the same thing. So hopefully that can continue to work, but we'll see if this again Troy Weaver in the front office don't have as much invested in Seku. You know, it's the the discussion was. Are they going to trade Seku and just complete rebuild with all Troy Weaver guys? We'll, we'll see. They've they've done a good. He's shown improvement, and I I, I was uh, proud of the way he hustled today. But we'll we'll have to see kind of long term. One thing that he struggles with is being strong with the ball, and you saw that a couple of times where he lost the ball on on a, on a couple of drives. But I was proud that on that dunk he dunked it because there have been times where he's gone there and hasn't dunked it, and it has just kind of tried some layup and got himself swatted in, and and that was that. So uh, props to Seku there. Uh, I'm done talking about him. I think the only thing I would say more about Seku is like the tough spot, spot for him, if, if anyone kind of offers you something of value, when you got guys like Sadiq Bey and Jeremy Grant both on the team, theoretically for the long term, those are kind of your closing 3-4. So is are you, are you putting a lot of time in developing a guy who will probably never be part of a closing lineup? Even if this team's good, like that's my question. Or do you develop him, hoping that your 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 center that you drafted Isaiah Stewart's never part of your closing lineup, and that you're going six eight six eight six seven, um, with more of a switchy lineup with Killian, who's pretty big six five, and then whoever this two guard that you theoretically can get in this draft, or you know maybe even a Cade Cunningham that's got some size to him. There's there's some potential for some switchy switchy Pistons. There are. It's interesting. We'll see. Seku could have really developed from the G League, uh, but we didn't send anyone to the G League this year. So it, it is what it is. But uh, again, no more Seku. Okay. Um, again, if you if you just let me continue to talk about the Pistons, I'll continue to talk about the Pistons. But uh, if, if maybe there's some some Blazers. We'll, we'll, we'll talk. We, we talk about the Blazers and how they're beating the Pistons. That's like we're getting Blazer talk in here. But it's all about how the Pistons... The Pistons have the young players that we're, everyone should be interested in. Because even if the Pistons can't develop them, someone else can. Yeah. Um, well, there was a... Like you mentioned, there was just a stretch where the Blazers decided just not to miss any threes. And the or just any shots, just in general. So uh, that happened for the first... Through, through, through a good portion of the second quarter as well. Um, and one thing that I... One player that I enjoyed in the Pistons, and I don't know. Maybe, maybe you. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but but Frank Jackson looked pretty good in today's game. He was very active, and, and one of the things that Frank Jackson, like people have thought about him as a point guard, uh, just because of just his general size and and all that. But but really, Frank Jackson has has been one of those like point guard kind of sized two guards. Really, that's. He's six foot three, but he's firing. He's kind of said, you know what? We don't really have other than Wayne. We really don't have someone who's willing to just take movement threes or off, you know, just pull pull from deep. So he's taken that responsibility onto himself, and he did pretty well in in today's game. 
you know, going six for nine, two for five from the three-point line, and you know, 17 points overall. He hustled. He did some interesting things, and he seems like he would be a good third point guard slash maybe you know, basically he just that if you need that extra guard to kind of come off and be able to do things on a team long term. He seems like one of those guys who would be an interesting person to have long term. Yeah, I've never been a big Frank Jackson guy because of that. Like he, I feel like he's always going to be a little miscast because of his size to do facilitation. But he's definitely in the more like he's he's I think I think an inch an inch shorter, and he doesn't look he looks like he might be more. But he's he's a Jordan Clarkson type of player, a guy who comes in to get his shot and really his shot only. I mean, I'm looking at his stats right now. He's averaging less than an assist per game, um, playing 14 minutes per game. If you're a guy with the ball in your hands as much as he will have it, you know, he's someone who should do a little bit better. But his percentages are great this season. He's he's shooting three threes per game at 43%, and he's shooting getting get to the rim probably basically every other game for a, a foul or getting an and one. He's shooting 83% there. So his jump shot is coming along well, and I think that has a lot to do with just having more of a – more free space to work in an offense now that he's playing for Detroit versus the Pelicans teams with the last, even though he only played for the last couple of years, they were making, they were trying at, at different points. They were trying to make strides. You remember two years ago, with the Pelicans, that was still Anthony Davis out there, uh, half, half trying, um, for most of the season. So he wasn't going to get a lot of real burn out there and also playing behind Drew Holiday. And then last year, same thing with playing behind Drew Holiday and then some more young players, like Alonzo Ball, he wasn't going to get real burn. He was just out there to, to fire away. And his fire away time went to Nikhil Alexander-Walker by the end of it all. So, like, he didn't really have the, the pro- a proper you know, proper length leash for how he needed to be allowed to play. But I, I, I kind of like him here for the Pistons, you know, that third guard thing. And I even think spot starter, if Killian Hayes can develop and he can handle the facilitation, you got 6'5", 6'3". Like, I don't think that's necessarily going to kill you um if you know he needs to be out there for maybe some spark offensively you know individual creation to help jeremy grant out and, I, and you know who knows Pistons could draft Cade cunningham and then you know you, people get but like i have been i said like third point guard but again he's not really a point guard you could view him as just your fifth guard on your team right you've got your your starting your starting guards you got your backup point backup two guard but like you know, in case of injury, kind of like he seems like he could be that guy to be a little bit versatile. Again, he's not a point guard, and that's kind of the problem where he's miscast. In situations where he kind of has had to take on that role in the season, it's been like, oh, you're just dribbling for 15 seconds here. Okay, because like that that's just kind of what's happened. He's not really been a facilitator in, but I like him this game. He was fun. He was one of the better, other than like Sadiq Bey and... Uh, seeing uh, Dimboya do things out in transition. I guess some late Josh Jackson. Josh Jackson shot came, a great percentage came, for the day. Yeah, came, came, came on. He didn't. He didn't barely touch the ball in the first quarter in his first stint. But he's like, I'm, I'm going to take some at the end. And he played pretty well in the end. When again, the game was kind of out of place. But like again, I was I was happy to see Frank Jackson uh, do some things. Like rather Frank Jackson than Corey Joseph. Let me just say that. Absolutely, Corey Joseph really should not be. I just don't see the point of him playing big minutes for you guys. Like he's not, he's not a good enough caretaker of the offense to justify like 30 minutes a game. The goal I think is showing that he's still got something because his contract next year is non-guaranteed and the potential to be able to trade him this off season. I think that's kind of what they're, okay. I think that's the goal. So um, he, he's on, he's on the chop block. If you don't no, find yeah. a partner. 
oh yeah yes like if we don't find a partner we're gonna cut him and so we want to we want to play well enough that we can find uh, you know someone to to do something with so at, at 10 million a year i don't think that's gonna happen probably not so we're probably gonna eat that eat that like what two million or whatever so um one thing i want to mention on the blazers aspect of it because we mentioned this earlier like Cantor got 30 boards okay so like uh but new re- blazer record blazer record and hadn't been done since 2018 um in, in the nba so a lot of dame opened everything up the pistons said we're going to try to take dame out of it maybe made things a little bit tough for dame uh at no at the outset um but he easily figured out kind of, okay, this is what we're doing. And he ended up opening things up for everybody else. Uh, whether it was, I'm going to go ahead and take it to the rim on a pick and roll. And even if I miss this shot, Cantor's there to eat up boards and putbacks. And Cantor had a million of those. He found him in good spots, finding other people. And so I just wanted to really emphasize, because I think this gets said a lot for people who are more of the pass first point guard, like maybe like a Ricky Rubio or Steve Nash back in the days, like, oh, this person makes, you know, other people way better. Well, Dame in everything that he does makes everyone, everyone on this Blazers team so much better. And I just really wanted to emphasize and say, it's not just Dame looking out for Dame and hitting tough shots, which he did and which he does, but it's Dame makes everybody else so much better. Um, And I just wanted to uh, make sure I, I said that here. In this yeah, even in, the, even in the traditional sense, he had 10 assists today with one turnover. So he's moving the ball. But yeah, like we were, we were talking about it pre-pod just a little bit like with pickup stuff. Like I, if I set screens for people in pickup and they, no one catches me on the roll, I don't always want people to pass me the ball because we're not good at basketball. People don't throw good passes. I got to spend more time trying to gather. I'd rather people just throw the ball up, touch the rim. I'll, I'll beat most people to a rebound. Um, but that, that's just what Dame does, too. Dame will take some heavily contested shots when both people step up, but one's late, so it's still an opening. And then Cantor's rolling with no one to check him all the way to the rim. Or Nurkic doing the same thing. Or even a, a small guy like Covington. Uh, Derek Jones Jr., very good at crashing the offensive board. There's a lot of ways to create offense when you are talking when you have a guy who can shoot literally on a on a, any given time. Like, oh, you, you, le- you, did, you didn't step up that extra... You're, that extra step? Oh yeah, now I'm shooting. It's fine. There is something else I'd like to talk about regarding the Blazers and some of their options when it comes to closing games or maybe trying to really get back into a game where there's been some mismatch problems. Because when you're talking about Nurkic and Cantor, there's always going to be some teams you know, that have guys who kind of push those guys off the court. Nurkic, a lot of times, because of how good he can be offensively posting up, he's, a, like, you know, more forceful with where he gets his positioning. Whereas Cantor, while he's actually probably a better post, like, scorer than Nurkic, he doesn't always forcefully get himself in position. I feel like he doesn't have, like, maybe the confidence in the offense that I can just call for a post up when Dame's, um, Dame's out there. So I do like Nurkic being able to take advantage of some size. But for small lineups, Richard, there's a, there's a couple things I like, which Rondé didn't play great in his first stint. I thought played better in the second time around. But with Rondé Hollis-Jefferson joining the fray, there's a couple lineups I kind of like. And it's usually with one of Dame or CJ, not both, because I want Norm's defense out there um, in theory. So I think with Dame or CJ kind of leading the charge with Powell um, in the backcourt with him, 
the combination of Derek Jones Jr., Rocco, Rondé, and you could insert uh, Little for any one of those people. Um, I really like that as, you know, those, those are three active defenders no matter what. Um, Rondé and Rocco, pretty good help side in terms of protecting the rim a little bit, like showing, showing some resistance there. But aside from Rocco, all those guys are pretty good on ball defenders. Rocco, you know, against the best players is not good. Against most players is okay. But like, I kind of like that as like a little small ball option. You got Derek Jones Jr. and Rondé, who are really good screen setters, can really, you know, can provide you with the rolling option. Uh, Rocco, more of the pick and pop. And if Nasir Little shooting is going to prevail, um, if you have Rocco out there, you're going to have three shooters, ball handler being Damer, CJ, Powell, and Rocco. And if Little's out there and he continues to shoot well, you're talking about uh, four shooters. And I, I really like that as a, as a wrinkle the Blazers are going to be able to pull. The thing I'm concerned with, Richard, is it's going to end up being mellow out there instead of one of the other defensive players. And I wrote that down. I said, they're currently running this with Mello. It's fine for the offense. But Mello, unless he's got a big guy to kind of hide on, he's not doing it defensively. Yeah. I, when you when you started on that road, I was going to come in and say, but are we are, are you do you think they're really going to play Ronnie Hollis Jefferson over Carmelo Anthony? Do you really think they're playing not so little over Carmelo Anthony in the end when it counts. I don't think so. Now, could they talk themselves into Derrick Jones Jr. over Melo? That's the one that I think that you're going to have to find. But I don't. I feel like you're going to start with Melo, then you realize, ooh, I can't really do it. Let's put Derrick Jones Jr. and then let's see. Hopefully, in that small sample, when he got there, he plays well and you can stick with him. Um, but I, I don't think Ryan Hollis Jefferson's offensively, you know, like as bad as Melo is, defensively like I view Ronnie Hollis Jefferson and the way teams are going to treat him often like offensively I feel like you're going to have that negative impact whereas Derek Jones Jr. has things that he can do I mean, he hit a corner three without much hesitation um I I know that uh you know he's shooting 33 percent from from three taking about two and a half a game that's that's nice um for him but like you're not going to get that with Ronnie Hollis Jefferson yeah it's so like even if teams do the, we're not covering Derek Jones Jr., like he still might be able to make them pay. So I think that's the best of both worlds if you can figure that out because I don't think that they're going to do it with Nasir Little yet. Um, and I don't think they're doing it with Ronnie Hollis Jefferson yet. And if you give, even if Derek Jones Jr. is feeling a little unconfident with his jump shot, if you give him a, like a, a couple steps to get rolling, he'll jump really high and try to dunk it. And really, your only defense is to get ball or foul. And a lot of people can't jump high enough to get ball. So he's like, he still provides spacing, even if it's uh and also he's a great roller. Like you can throw it anywhere. He'll throw it in. I, I do agree that Rondé is the stretch there. I, I It's more of like a, the defensive thing. Cause one of the things um, Nate Duncan and Daniel Leroux talk about on their pod, it, it's kind of like a theory thing. Like, you know, a lot of teams when they need to come back, they think, do, do should we throw all offense out there and hope we get hot? Um, whereas I, I, I kind of tend to agree with one of their thoughts is that maybe you should go for a more defensive lineup with one really good offensive player and and hope you can get stops. And that's why Rondé was seeming more appealing to me. I think you could do a lot of what you know Cantor does when he's not being accounted for at the top of the key with handoffs. You catch a defense slipping, people aren't ready to come up all the way because it's like a bit of a new lineup. You could probably get away with some nice dribble handoff open threes as well. Um, but yeah, I, I like Rondé in the short role, but he's he's going to get ignored anytime he's not involved in the play. So 
the question is, can you justify involving Rondé in the play? And that's where I agree. It's a little questionable. And if you do in any crunch time, guess who they're following? Him and same with the Lions hitting a... So yeah. it's, it's like... Again, this this was more of my, like, it's start of the fourth quarter. We need to go on a run. Dame's probably not on the court unless it's, like, really bad. And, then, and Dame's trying to figure out if he can make the run to then set up the run. Like, that's the... Dame usually sits, like, the first couple minutes of the fourth um, if the game's really close. And if not, they play him to start the fourth, see if they can stay in the game or get back in the game, and then, you know, go from there. But I was thinking more of, like, a, okay, we're, it's, we're 20 points down. Um, we just need to see if we have anything left to get us within, you know, within 10. Let's run a, a little, bit, little bit more of a defensive heavy lineup. They're not going to be fouling yet. That, that, that's my that's my concept around this idea. And I, I would prefer Derek Jones Jr., Rocco, and Nasir, to be sure. Um, but I think Rondé, with some of his short, uh, short roll passing abilities and his defense mainly, I think there's something to be had there. I don't, I don't think this was a wasted signing. Um, I've got a couple, like, I got, I think, three quick, just things that I want to note, takes, things I have about the Pistons, and then I will have mentioned what I need to about the Pistons, okay? First, when Killian brings the ball up, he brings the ball up very much in his right hand, uh, to get himself over to the right, I don't know, I would say just right side of the court, so that he's got the whole floor available to him as he's going left. He's always bringing it up there to just give himself more space. So this is one thing that I noticed. It's something that's going to happen. I think that because they are there, I wonder if teams, I mean, one of the things that the Blazers did is to kind of counteract anything that Killian did was they said, all right, we're going to put Derek Jones Jr. on you. We're going to go ahead and guard you with um, our bigger wings rather than try to have Dame or even CJ pick you up that much because we just want to make life difficult for you. And and so that was what they tried to do, but the Blazers ended up counteracting that. Second thing I wanted to note is that, and it was a ridiculous thing when it happened, and I've got no idea. So Norm Powell got a tech in the fourth quarter. Do you know who took the free throw? I don't. I must have, that must have been when we started FaceTiming. And Corey our, Joseph. Took the free ah, throw. No. It went Is about he... as you can as as you could have expected. Oh, I gotta look this up. So I looked up I looked up Rondé Hollis Jefferson's uh, career free throw, and he's a seventy three percent. And you're concerned about him shooting free throws. Uh, Corey Joseph's a career seventy seven. So I mean, well, not that big a difference. <laughs> it's not what I wanted when I, I'm sure there had to have been a better person out there, but it was it was tough, and especially if you miss it, goodness. Um, I'm pretty sure Seku, again, made all of his free throws. Like, Seku was out there, but Dwayne Casey's not letting Seku take a, take that shot yet. Um, So yeah, that was that's... just another thing that just stuck out to me. I was kind of frustrated with. Um, the third one. The third and final one as far as Pistons players uh, and, and observations. Isaiah Stewart. We've not talked about him that much in this game. But uh, obviously, Pistons fans love Isaiah Stewart. They love the things he can do. He, uh, you know, tries, gives lots, lots of effort. He's going to get offensive boards. Um, it, it's it's what's going to happen. Um, in in this game, let's see. He had um, where, where 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 did he go? Aha, here we go. 
he had one offensive board. He, you know, gave gave some effort on some things. But at the same time, this game showed his limitations, I think. He's tried to just pop it out to three, you know, missed the shot, fine. This game showed his limitations as a defensive five. He's shown some spurts of being able to uh, defend on the perimeter in an okay way, but as a rim protector and as a rim runner, uh, number one, he's not getting high. He can't jump, right? That's one of the knocks on him. One of the things that we were kind of concerned about, he can't jump. Also, he's undersized. And so he's going to find himself in the right position. He found himself in the right position a lot of times on defense and in defending uh, as, as he's dropping back to the rim. But he'd go up to, like, defend a C.J. McCollum shot. Wouldn't get high enough. C.J. would be able to make it. He'd go up and try to go up and defend an Enos Cantor um, shot at the rim. Enos would get it right over his hands. He w- he'd be in the right spot. And who knows? Maybe he needs to, because of those limitations, be a little bit more aggressive so that you're, you're cutting that off. But it's just, he found himself giving a lot of effort trying, but being a little too small and not having enough um, vertical nature to his game to be able to make as much of an impact. And I know that Piston fans, uh, like, we love Isaiah Stewart and all that he does and all that he brings. And a lot of us think to ourselves, oh, well, he's our center of the future. I think what he ends up being, unless everyone else around him is sweet, I think that he ends up being a really, really good backup center for you long-term. And that's what you should expect. If he could do that, um, you know, be able to take some starter minutes if he needs to. But like, if you're trying to win basketball games long-term, I don't know if Isaiah Stewart at the five is going to get you, I don't know. I think it would take everyone else in the lineup being really, really, really awesome. And I don't know. It's tough. Yeah, I, I, it's a different. It's a different type of the, the, his problems, but it's the, the, they're existent because it's never an effort thing. It's never a. It's honestly not a positioning thing all that often, other than maybe maybe getting into their space a little bit more, so they don't have as much time to like they don't have the ability to rise up as easily. Um, but then you're you're going to be in more foul trouble. But it, it, you're 100 percent right. Like I, I I noticed it. I'm just like oh your your lack of bounce just just costing you constantly. You just can't get off the ground. And if you're six nine, that's a problem. Like Bam is is six nine. They're the same size, but Bam has that incredible bounce, right? So no matter what, he's at the rim. Actually, they're affecting things. It, I, I I do think he can be a starting center, mm-hmm. yes. but I think so. Like I would look at him as like this. It, he tops out playing twenty like twenty four minutes a game, where it's it's start start the first quarter, gets him in the second, start the third start the fourth but you got you're gonna have to have a, a closing lineup option and that's something that you know i think troy weaver is uniquely equipped to find based on his uh, his love for athleticism if he can find himself like an either another jeremy grant type in the draft or if seku can develop into a really you know positive offensive player so his defense is allowed to you know be shown a little bit more be able to close like that lineup I talked about earlier. Grant Bay and 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 Seku, I think could could be part of a closing front court against every team that doesn't have Joel Embiid, Nikola Jokic, 
know, those kinds of guys. Like, even against a Rudy Gobert, what's like Rudy, if, if Seku can shoot, that's going to give that team some problems in closing lineups. You know what I'm saying? And that that's where I'm talking about. If Unless you're playing against the elite of the elite bigs, where a lot of times it doesn't matter. You just have to have a big guy out there so it's not easy. Like, Isaiah Stewart, I think, can still help in that regard. The, the hope is, again, that Isaiah can shoot himself. But he's able to spread the floor because he's not going to have the gravity as a role man because he can't get up. So you need him to be a pick-and-pop guy. You need him to kind of be in the more Al Horford role offensively than in the guy who's actually, again, picking and rolling hard to the rim. So I, it's just, those are my concerns where if if you, if that shot never gets, to, like, I, that three-point percentage I think would have to get pretty like in the mid to high 30s like that's where you have to get to like you got to be hitting like 38 percent of your threes for you to be able to i think be the 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 danger and pick a pop if you're not really going to bring much to the role game but here's the problem if you're doing that one of the benefits that you bring is as an offensive rebounder you're not really putting yourself in that position is that well so that's kind of the, the the issue that I that I see with Stewart's like if you can like you do bring offensive rebounding, but if but you can't really be a role man uh, and have much gravity, so it, it's everyone else needs to be a really really good shooter to give you the space. I, I don't know. It's I I think that's the point where it's on the coach to find find the center like have him be screen off ball more so than on ball. When you screen on ball, he's probably going to pop. But when you screen off ball, you're setting, you know, with two defenders like going out, like you, you might be able to get some layups. And you know, it's, I'm gonna I'm gonna comp him real quick in terms of like what we you kind of need from him to be a starting center. Um, what Myers Leonard was doing for the Heat last year, as a you know, he's playing next to like a really good defensive player, like, um, and Bam playing the power forward. But Myers like would still roll to the rim a lot when he was setting those, you know, dribble handoff or just like, you know, setting uh, down screens for Duncan before he would go to the dribble handoff and he would sometimes roll there. That's kind of what you're going to need to do with Isaiah Stewart. Get him where he's screening off ball so he can roll, you know, and be there for when a shot is coming. Like he's setting up a shot via setting a screen for someone to like Wayne Ellington to come out of the corner and to above the break. And now he's rolling there. A shot's coming. He's in position for rebounds, but also when you have say Killian Hayes development a little bit, they're, they're running some pick and roll at the top of the key. He can pop Killian whips it back to him and he can shoot his threes there because Myers Leonard shot a lot of threes from above the break and he was good at it. And that's what Isaiah Stewart will need to do. By the way, he's shooting 40% on 25 attempts this year. No, he is. So, yeah. like, and and we, we mentioned it, even though he shot, like, I think, like, 28% or something like that in college. We never, I don't think we ever thought his shot looked horrible. His base is a little wide for his shoulders. I'd like to see it, like, you know, be a little bit more simple and, and look sweeter. But he's got the, he's got the base. It's just. He he has a clear ability to to not be terrible at that. When we were talking pre-draft, the discussion with him was, it's tough in this Washington situation to see it. He really didn't get the opportunity, but teams think that he could develop a three-point shot. Like that was that was the the book on on Stewart offensively, um, in, in a potential expansion of role, and and that's been the book so far as well. That that's how the Pistons kind of have, have viewed things. Um, yeah, well. 
we'll have to we'll have to see. Um, it, it, he's interesting. The Pistons have toyed with him starting at the playing minutes at the four with another center. I think in the case of a if you can get Mobley at number two, I think that they're trying to see could something like that work. Um, I don't again don't love it, but um, we'll we'll see we'll see long term. Um, we've been going for a while. I don't know if there's anything else that you have to that you, you you're interested in bringing up. I just want to bring the nugget from the Corey Joseph free throw. I checked the play-by-play. This is the lineup that they selected Corey Joseph to shoot from. It was Hammy. You're going to pick Corey over Hammy. Seku, it's a wash by percentage because Corey's actually shooting 81% this year. Josh Jackson, I think you'd rather have Corey. And Jaleel Okafor, I think you'd rather have Corey. So as much as I understand your frustration, and I might have leaned Seku because he had made two in a row about two possessions earlier, I just wanted to let you know that Dwayne Casey, while I don't disagree with you, it was not an egregious choice. Um, that was a veteran. That was the veteran just saying, "I'm shooting this." It was. It was. It was egregious. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs>